Today's Mother's Day. So, what's the definition? They say that the most overused word in the English language is set, S-E-T. In my Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, I think there's a whole, one whole column and a half of another column of all the definitions of set. Somewhere between, it's uh, about 30 definitions, give or take 10. Maybe 50, I don't know. You, you, you can look it up and it's... So what's the definition of mother? You could, you think you'd get all the definitions in a column and a half of a Webster's Dictionary? I don't think so. I actually didn't look how many there were. But... Uh, Mother's Day is today. They say this is about the 108th year for Mother's Day. Um, started by a lady by the name of Anna Jarvis. And on May 10th of 1908, there was two Mother's Day events, one in Grafton, West Virginia, and one in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And it's interesting <clears throat> that this lady promoted Mother's Day. I mean, she traveled, she committed her life into promoting Mother's Day. And, uh, but somehow at the end, she turned sour against her own proposition. And the reason why she turned shallow on her own proposition was that, uh, oh, by the way, she, she couldn't be at Philadelphia and Grafton at the same time, so she sent carnations, white carnations, to the event in Grafton, West Virginia, so that all the couples could wear white carnations on Mother's Day. And uh, I don't know if that started the tradition, flowers on Mother's Day or what, but eventually, she turned against the whole proposition, and she actually campaigned against it. And the reason why she did was because that people substituted cards and flowers for authentic expressions of gratefulness to the mom. And she said that... Uh, Poorly written, but uh, but sincere note to the mom beats a card and flowers any day. And so she actually, she said it was overly commercialized, and she campaigned against it. In fact, one of her last known expressions of disgust. She went out for a Mother's Day dinner, ordered it up, and turned the whole thing upside down on the restaurant floor, paid the bill, and walked out.
on Mother's Day. And she ended up a recluse, bitter woman. find that interesting. I don't know that I would have went to that extent. However, she does have a point. If all mother get is a card and flowers after a rocky year, then I guess the flowers and the card doesn't mean much anyhow. Anyhow, stages of motherhood. <clears throat> Four years old, my mommy can do anything. Eight years of age, my mom knows a lot, a whole lot. Twelve years of age, my mother doesn't really know quite everything. Fourteen, naturally, mother doesn't know that either. Sixteen, mother, oh, she's hopelessly old-fashioned. Twenty-five, well, she might know a little bit about it. Thirty-five, before we decide, let's get mom's opinion. Forty-five, wonder what mom would have thought about it. Sixty-five, wish I could talk it over with mom. Um, I told you a story about my first card that I gave to my mom. Remember that story? Did I, I, no? Didn't I tell you that here? How's about? I don't know. Seven, eight, nine, ten, I don't know. Somehow or the other, the light started coming on that mom was important. So I went to the store the day before Mom Mother's Day, and my dad's store was not a card store. It was a grocery store, but they had this little cardboard display about this high, about that wide, and with slots in it for cards. And they were all Mother's Day cards. So I looked through the cards, and, well, oh. When I walked up there, there was about all, all gone, except this one card, and there was like a whole stack of them. And I had my selection, and I looked at this card. And by the way, when we were cleaning up, dispersing everything, after my mom passed away, guess what I found? It was this one card, there was a whole pile of them, and I thought this was the most wonderful card to be seen. To mom. And I opened it up, and it was wonderful inside. From your little black sheep. <laughs> In case you can't read. <laughs> and I can understand why. They, people would buy all the cards, but they wouldn't buy that card when it was so nice. And actually, uh, I never even signed a card. I guess I was so young, I didn't even know you signed cards. But I gave it to my mom, and she thought this was the most wonderful Mother's Day card. Unfortunately, it became a family joke, even to this day. If you want to know who the black sheep of the Martin family is, it's Dennis, without a doubt. And so, that 
was my first expression of thanks to my mom. I ran across that and we was dividing things up. I could not believe my eyes. Right there it was. Well, I'm thinking, who's the greatest mom in the Bible? And I thought it had to be Mary. But then I looked. It's like, okay, if I'm going to talk about Mary, um, i got to figure out what kind of a mom she was. So what, what kind of a mom was Mary? Turns me to Luke 1. We're going to link read from Luke 1, but I, I was looking, it's like, okay, what was she like? What, what was she like? And evidently a very somewhat quiet person. Um, I'm not sure who gave Jesus a scolding when he was in the temple. Uh, whether it was Mary, it was, does it say? Um, it says they oh his mother said unto him son why hast thou dealt with us behold thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing and then Jesus reply and it says that Mary pondered all these things in her heart and if you go back to the beginning of chapter 2 um, the angels but in verse 19 it says but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart it doesn't really say much about her mothering skills or the Bible's somewhat quiet you, you don't really read whether she rocked Jesus or she rocked him to sleep. Did she? You know, you have all these little songs and stuff about. Um, but the Bible doesn't say much. And I'm thinking, well, how how did. How did she think? It says she pondered things in her heart. Like, is there a window into her thinking? And I thought of the Magnificent. And we're going to look at that this morning. I believe the Magnificent, which is Luke 1, 46-55, when her and Elizabeth met, 
before the birth of Jesus? Let's start at verse 40. I'm going to talk about 46, but let's start at verse 40. 39. And Mary rose in those days and went to the hill country with haste into a city of Judah and entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost, and she spake out with a loud voice. Now you have Elizabeth, um, let's be quite outgoing, and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she that believeth. For there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. And Mary said, and this is the window that we have unto Mary's mind, her thinking. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden, for, behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed, for he that is mighty hath done great has done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath shown strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats, and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. He hath helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. There, brothers and sisters, is a window into Mary's mind. How did Mary think? You know, how we think is going to determine what we do, how we live, how we will relate to our children. How, what kind of a mom she was. I'm on the yard, and I'm thinking, what is, what would be the number one character quality that would make a number one mom a number one mom? What would it be? Just, just one thing. You can mow a long time on that one. You know, I have about three acres to do, or four acres. And I'm thinking, obviously a commitment to Jesus Christ, that's, that's a given for a godly mom. Uh, I'm thinking, I wonder if it isn't gratitude. You know, a mom can do just about anything she wants, but she's a grouch. And everything, the whole world's wrong. You know, it doesn't go very far. But if there's a mom that's a grateful mom, 
A lot of things can be less than ideal. You know, there's a lot, lot to be absorbed, a lot to be said about a person that is continually grateful. Uh, I don't like the word stepmom, so I'll say my last mom. I have two of them. At her viewing, somebody came through the line. She said, they said to me, she was not your stepmom. She was your mom. And I said, that's absolutely true. That's right. And if you go online and look up Mary E. Martin, you will find in the obituary that there is nothing said about her being a second wife. She had four sons and two daughters. That's what it says. And I was so proud of my siblings who wrote that obituary. We went to her place one visitor. And I happened to leave a brand new bar of Coast soap in the bathroom. Anyhow, they got home and so left my soap there. All right, so what? She can use it, whatever. And I'm talking to her on the phone, and she says, "Well, that was pretty nice. You left that bar of soap there. It just kind of really makes the whole bathroom smell good." And I'm thinking to myself. Now that's gratitude. You get down to the bar of smoke, bar of soap smelling up the bathroom. That's that's being thankful for the small things in life, really. But you look at Mary here. First thing, right off, right off. Where does she start with gratitude? You know, the Bible says we need to serve God with our Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Body, soul, and spirit. She's carrying the Lord Jesus. She's honoring God with her body. Her soul, she says, is magnifying the Lord, and her spirit is rejoicing in God her Savior. Now that's serving God with everything. She starts out, my soul magnifies. The Lord. Rejoicing in God my Savior. Notice the tying of the Old Testament with the New Testament. Jesus wasn't even born yet, but she said, I am rejoicing in my Savior that's not even born yet. I thought about that verse in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Grateful moms. I'm talking to mom this morning. Most of all, this applies to dads too, but we'll let somebody else do that. Well, I'm not sure who's going to do it. I didn't look at the schedule. Do we schedule it out yet? So who's doing it? You know? Oh, Delvin gets to. Well, you don't have to pick your subject. <laughs> That's a toughie. 
sometimes picking yourself. Well, you don't have to. You can preach it however you want. <clears throat> Number two, she recognizes that her personal selection by God to be used of God was God condescending himself down to her. In other words, you don't see Mary with an inflated view of herself. Whatever God did in her life, she viewed it as, as not because he's so great, but because God was willing to come down to her. Now she recognized she was special, but she did not flaunt that. That specialness was based on the fact that God saw her as someone he could use. And mom, this morning, it's no coincidence that God has chosen you to be the mom of your children. No coincidence. And I, re I didn't really think about that. But I was told by a third party that when Eric and Julia Schrock were being interviewed prior to his ordination, they got to talking about their special, they have a special son, special needs son, you want to call it that? What's his name? Joel? And they made this statement that we feel honored to be chosen by God to be the parents of a special needs child. Get a hold of that. We feel honored by God that God would choose them to be the parents of a special needs child. They recognize it as no accident. Do we recognize it? That it's no accident that every single one of our child, children, is placed there by God? For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. You just think about, you think about the miracle of conception, the miracle of fetal development and birth is a great thing by God alone. And it's in His holiness that He allows that to happen. That is His plan. You know, people talk about to have another baby. Have a baby. You know, going to have a baby. Then you know, oh, you got a baby. You got a baby. You know, having a baby is more than having a baby. Seriously, more than having a baby. It is bringing into this world an eternal soul. 
It never dies. And so Mary sees her profoundly important but inadequate but blessed place in in God's plan for her and her family. And she stands in awe of that. And she recognizes it as extremely sacred. Yet blessed beyond measure. Verse 50 says, And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. So Mary sees herself as a recipient of the mercy of God. Now, what is mercy? A while back, uh, Brother Ryan Hoover here quoted Webster's 1828 dictionary. And I have found that quite interesting. And so I go to Webster's 1828 sometimes more often than the current one because it's, in my opinion, it's more accurate. It's not been distorted by the, as much by the ungodliness of our culture. And I'm not saying that was all fine back there. I'm just simply saying the world is getting worse and worse and we might as well accept that. But that says mercy, that benevolence, mildness or tenderness of heart, which disposes a person to overlook injuries or to treat an offender better than he deserves. The disposition that tempers justice and induces an injured person to forgive trespasses and injuries and to forbear punishment or inflict less than law or justice will warrant. In this sense, there is perhaps no word in our language precisely synonymous with mercy. That which comes nearest to it is grace. It implies benevolence, tenderness, mildness, pity or compassion, and clemency, but exercised only toward offenders. Mercy is a distinguishing attribute of the supreme being. So, when Mary said, recognized the mercy of God and what she also must, because mercy has to do with offenders, she also recognized that she at one time or the other offended God. I don't know when that was. But see, we're the, we're the same way. If we recognize the mercy of God, we by recognizing that say that I have offended God and He has not given me what I deserve. And those who understand that mercy has extent, been extended to them will, if that is authentic, then extend mercy to others. See, when I think that I 
I'm pretty good and God got a good deal. Well, I'm going to be offended by other people. But when I recognize, you know, yeah, I'm not doing too good a time for myself, and I'm glad God doesn't give me what I deserve, then I'm willing to extend that to other people. And who needs mercy more than a mom, you know, with their misbehaving children sometimes? I know my mom needs a lot of mercy. I, you know, um, you know, and in a sense, we're all children. We're all children of God. And children misbehave. If you have a merciless mom, you have a miserable home. Or a merciless dad, for that matter. Deal out everything that everybody deserves. Now, and, 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 and you have that today. You, you ever hear of shaken baby syndrome? Shake a baby because it won't quit crying or for whatever. In other words, parents, there's anger, is out of control. They grab the baby and they shake it. And, of course, there's spinal head injuries. That's merciless. But mercy, according to the definition there, says... The closest word is grace. And so a person that is merciful, a mom that is merciful, will also be a graceful mom. Right? So, what's a graceful mom? That's my next question. What's a graceful mom? See, when we're recipients of God's grace, again, we will be graceful people. When I think of my two mothers, I, I think of graceful. Uh, a graceful people. And so that definition uh, could fill up pages and pages, whatever of how my mom was a graceful person. For example, I never, ever remember, remember being in an argument, argument with my second mom. Now, I probably did with my first one. I, 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 that's pretty far back. I was 17, and I'm not... But... Uh, I was just at the point of beginning to know her as an adult rather than a figurehead. You know what I mean? Like, you know what? There's something about a graceful, godly mom that is profoundly different in our North American culture than our North American culture. Profoundly different. And I don't know if we can always lay a finger on it.
The def definition in the dictionary, dignified or restrained beauty of form, appearance, or style. Dignified or restrained beauty. Now, what does our culture do? Does a typical American woman attempt to restrain her beauty? Now, if all American women would attempt to restrain their beauty, what would happen with the cosmetic companies, all the people that do the hair? All, what would happen? All the tanning people? All the... What would happen? I tell you what, a lot, a lot of businesses go out of places go out of business. It simply would if they were restraining their beauty. But some something about a godly woman that is restraining her beauty most of the time in our culture is still held with high respect. There's something about it. So I had a question. I mean, this is, has this is really taken my mind places I never thought. So, if Mary were to live today, how would she act? Now we're really getting into more thinking. How would Mary act? If she were here today, would she be reserved and poised? Or would she be flamboyant and flirtish? What would she be like? Now, I know that you and I know that I have a mental picture of Mary. And we have developed that picture over years of thinking about Mary and reading the story about her and, 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 and like what would she look like if she walked in this morning and sat down? What would Mary look like? How would she act? How would she be dressed? Would she have combed her hair this morning with her fingers? Instead of a comb? Would she have a flounce on her dress? What would she be like? Or would she be dignified and restrained in her appearance or style? So, and I, I'm involved in Bible school. I know that there's Mennonite, conservative Mennonite fashions that come and go. If you don't look, look back in the Maranatha handbooks. I mean, at one time they have poofs that wouldn't quit. I mean, you didn't want to go out in the rain because if they did, if your poof flopped, I mean, you were toast. You were done. And so they had the poofs and they had whatever. And the guys did this. You know, they have these... So what, what would, 
what, what would your impression be? Would you be disappointed? You'd be surprised? Would you, if Mary came in with the last conservative Mennonite style, would you be shocked? Does that fit your current definition of Mary? How would you how you would envision her if she, she if she would walk in? Would Mary be disappointed if she walked into prairie and sat down and looked around? Would she? Or would she be encouraged if she walked in, sat down, looked around? I would like to personally encourage all our moms here this morning in setting a standard of godliness and simplicity for those that follow you. I want to express my appreciation for that. I bless you for your godly example. And I certainly appreciate your efforts. But that's something to think about. Number four. I keep moving it. Uh, verse 50 says that his mercy is on them, this is the same verse, that fear him from generation to generation. So Mary had a multi-generational mindset. A multi-generational mindset. His mercy is to them from generation to generation. She didn't live for the present. That's unusual for, that mindset is unusual for our current, typical Christian North American mindset. It's typically not multi-generational, unfortunately. Do we as parents live with a multi-generational mindset? Looking back at those before us in appreciation, looking forward, living today for the benefit of the next generation, not just what I can get out of life, So then my mind went to multi-generational. I was thinking about moms working out outside of the home. So it's like, what determines whether moms should work out of the home? Most of the time, in our culture today, the reason, the determining factor, whether a mom works out or not, is whether she can make enough money to make it worthwhile. In other words, if you can pay for the extra car, you can pay for the fast, quick meals, the extra eating out, all the babysitting, and and and. Okay, I went on the internet and figure out and and says like, should we work out or not? And you know what? Every single one of them, pretty much, was all based on money. 
Now, I'm not saying it's wrong for a godly woman to work out in certain circumstances. What I am saying is this, that it shouldn't be income-based. That decision should not be income-based. Now, I read an article in the Reader's Digest probably about 1980, so that's 35 years ago. The average woman, after everything was paid off, made about a buck an hour or less. Like, everything. So, for eight bucks a day, um, max... I don't know what it is today. We know everything we do has a price. And I'm thinking, I'm riding them all, and I'm thinking, like, okay, so why do I think the way I think? Because of what my mother's influence and the things in my life that were around me. Um, and, I, and I thought of this, now this is really showing my age. How many here remember the Leuven brothers? Leuven Brothers. Okay, it was a, two brothers that sang gospel music, and I don't know if they sang other music, but these brothers did have problems. Um, alcohol was one of them, and I don't know. I didn't know that at the time, but I just found out recently that it, it was kind of bad news. But, in my dad's store, they had a ladies' lounge, which had a record player, which was right beside where we sorted bottles, and so we would turn the records on and put the speakers outside the window of the ladies' lounge, and we listened to the Lumen Brothers while we sorted bottles. And I remember one song that the Lumen Brothers sang, and the, and the title of it, The Price of the Bottle. And it went like this. The price of the bottle is just a down payment. There's no way of knowing the cost. For money can't comfort the hearts that are broken or buy back the souls that are lost. That's, in the end of the song, he says, I ask you, friend, what is the price of the bottle? That's, that's a good question. Despite the fact that he was an alcoholic... And despite the fact that in the song he says he stood in line at a whiskey store. And I don't know what in the world he's staying in line at a whiskey store for. And then he's right reading the song. But anyway, I don't make all that sense. But still, the question remains, what is the price of the bottle? Just a down payment. You know, everything we do has a price. Now, I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking, you know what? We call that an addiction. Okay, with that addiction, you cannot calculate the cost. But the problem is, America has more than one addiction. And one of our addictions is money. We excuse ourselves, we say we're not alcoholics. But we can be addicted to money. So I'm just simply saying this. What is the price of a working mother? That question must be answered. 
Now, I'm framing this in the negative, all right? But how about the positive? What is the price of a stay-home working mother? And I'll illustrate that with this. Say you had a million dollars, okay? You had a million dollars, but you were sentenced to prison for 20 years. So you wanted to hire somebody to raise your children while you were in prison. Who would you hire and how much would you be willing to pay? That's more thought too. And I will add, current conservative Mennonite social pressure shouldn't be the determining factor if or how much a mother should work out. It should be the Word of God and the spiritual well-being of our children. I just that, brothers and sisters, is the bottom line, and we need to think about that. Number five, she understood the consequences of pride and the exaltation of the humble. Verse 52 says, He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. You know, when Jesus was at the temple, and he's debating the doctors, all right? Now this, what, was he 12? Something like that? I don't know if it says that. Anyhow, somewhere around there. Twelve years old, he's debating the doctors. He's in there, and he's asking them questions, and he's, yeah. Now, wouldn't that swell your head as a mom? It's like, did you see that? That is incredible. That boy has an IQ I had no clue that he had. Humility must always be present, even when our children excel and are successful. The truth to the matter is that pride scatters and humility unites. Pride scatters, humility unites. That's what she says. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. So, Moms, it's humbling when somebody walks into your house. Toys everywhere. Looks like a tornado hit the place. Dirty dishes in the counter. Alright? It's like, wow! The place is a mess. Well, ask, let me ask you something. What is your options? No children? Demanding mom? Demanding mom? No toys? You know what? I'll just be honest with you. Life is a tornado. At times. It is. Yeah, it's a tornado. Children are messy. 
dishes pile up. Mom can't do everything at once. Humbling? Maybe? No, no, it's bad news to neglect your house and neglect your children. We need to set priorities. Dishes do need to be washed. But you know, something about prayer in that situation, something about gratitude in that that situation is an umbrella that certainly changes a life, your life and your life's perspective. God truly is good that there's dishes to be washed. God truly is good that the children are playing with the toys. God truly is good that your house looks like a tornado. I knew a mom who refused to have her house look like a tornado. There was no toys to be scattered on the floor. And her children today are confused. Not even, some are not even Christians. Why? Because of a perfectionist mom who had to prove that she could live perfect and her children had to be perfect too. Unfortunate. God is good. You know, when you're at home and you have all the children around you, my brother-in-law once told, said, you know what, the best day, years of your life is when all the children are home and they're all around the table. You know, and I, I thought about that, you know, it's like, yeah. That doesn't mean other years are bad. You're just simply saying the highlights of what you look back at when everybody was around a table. You know, Mary Sue and I enjoyed being empty nesters. That's the stage and we're enjoying that. But, you know, there's something about being an empty nesters. You don't have the chitter-chatter at the table. You, you don't have the campfires with all the children around and singing songs that turn out silly. The family gardening project, rows and rows of potatoes, and one of your sons attempting to weed the garden, laying parallel with the row, arm on one like this, and weeding with the other. And complaining full tilt. How hard life is. And scooting along on his elbow. The camping trips. You know, I'm thinking, you know, we've got to get the camp around and go camping. And I'm thinking, well, who are we going to chitter-chatter around the fire with? I mean, we chitter-chatter around the, the table now. It's like, we need more people.
But now we have the blessing of grandchildren, and we have the blessing of sending them home when they're naughty. <laughs> Just kidding. Number six. Mary understood the satisfaction of the hungry and the disappointment of the rich. You know, there's something about contentment, enjoying the simple things in life, rather than trying to find satisfaction, accumulation of things. So who's the richest, I asked this morning? Who's the richest? A child with limited toys and unlimited imagination, or a child with unlimited toys and bored stiff three days after Christmas? Who's the richest? Simple thing of being hungry and sitting around the table and having a good meal. Number seven. She had a deep appreciation of God and his commitment to his and God's commitment to his work among his people. You know, she said he hath hope in his servant Israel and remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers to Abraham and to his seed forever. She understood and appreciated God for being there, not only for her and for her family, but for her church. Now, I understand it was Old Testament and all that, but I'm going to talk about today. Her church. Few things in life are more stabilizing in a child's life. Pardon me. Than knowing that mom is first of all committed to God without hesitation, without reservation, and that she is committed to the church. And appreciates the church. She supports the church. She speaks highly of the church. She doesn't hang out dirty wash on, laun on laundry day, and neither does she hang out the dirty wash of the church in front of her children. So this morning, truly, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And I thank God this morning for godly mothers, and may their numbers increase.